Hi, I'm award-winning accountant and business advisor, Nishi Patel, and you're listening to the Unrelenting Drive podcast. This is essential listening if you're running a small business and need the motivation to scale it. I'll be talking to successful business owners to understand how they built their dream, the adversity they had to overcome along the way, and the advice they would give to someone starting up. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Tom Bedford from the Agenda Partnership. Hi, Tom. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And just to start with, if you could let people know what you do. Cool. So Agenda Partnership are a uh, recruitment and training company. So two separate businesses, uh, recruitment being our sort of core business, um, the business that we started with um, back in 2012, um, which came from my background and my business partner's background was was in recruitment. So naturally came together and um, went, went and run with, with Agenda Partnership, which um, we're now in our 11th year of trading. So Everything's going really well. Um, and then on the separate side of the organization, we have training. So we uh, run professional training courses on leadership development and personal development. Uh, also in sales and IT as well. But um, we, we run multiple sort of leadership development programs for small to medium-sized businesses, small businesses, uh, all the way through to large uh, PLCs as well. Amazing. So, and uh, I think... Uh, your rich, uh, sorry, your business partner is called Richard, isn't he? Yes. Okay. And what were you doing before you started the Agenda Partnership? So, I'll take you back to when I left school. Um, I didn't love education. I hated education. Um, and what I did do was ended up at sixth form for about fifteen minutes, uh, quite literally. Um, decided that it wasn't for me. Um, and before I got home, my parents already knew that I'd left. Um, so at that point they were saying, what, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to college, um, a bit different. Um, so I chose to do public services. Uh, I had the vision of becoming a police officer. Um, and I really enjoyed the, the year that I was doing in, in college. And I was going to go on and do the second, uh, second part of the, the diploma. Um, but then I realized the effort that I needed to fill in a police application form. So I started in a contact center, uh, telemarketing. So, uh, quite literally making 60, 70 dollars an hour. Um, you know, at the point it was giving away free magazines. So subscriptions, uh, for people that had magazines, uh, and I, I took to it really, really well. Um, and after my first year of college, I decided I'm not going to go on and do my second year or my third year. I'm going to go into full-time employment. Um, and that's what I decided to do. So basically born and raised in a contact center, um, in Wellingborough, where I was, where I was born, um, moved to another organization in Rushton, um, which was a contact center as well. Um, but they also had a recruitment part of their business and it, it really intrigued me. I wanted to do something else. So I wanted to go into industrial recruitment, um, for my sins I did for about four months because I, I just wish I didn't never left my, my last job. Um, and I met Richard at my first job in recruitment. Um, so he was my manager. Uh, and then he moved on and went to a business and, and sort of said, come with me. So I went with him uh, at the time. I pretty much doubled my salary um, and everything like was good, right? I was 20, nearly 21. Um, I didn't have any dependents. I didn't have a mortgage. Uh, my, my salary had just been doubled. I was like, yeah, this is, this is it. So you, you mentioned like, um, you had this like a preset mind mindset about recruitment. You thought it would be a certain way. What was the reality of, of what you saw when you actually went into it? What was the, 
the biggest surprise to you or the biggest difference to, to your own expectations? So, so as a junior recruiter, as someone learning how to uh, sell, because there's, there's get it right, recruiters are glorified telesales people in a, in, a, yeah. in a way, you know, because there's the graft of developing relationships, building a network, um, that's hard work. That's that's real hard graft, and that's what a lot of recruiters tend to to not want to do anymore. That's why people yeah. tend to come out of recruitment um, because it becomes it's a, it's a real challenge. Um, so as a junior recruiter, didn't didn't pick anything off that. I didn't think that was going to be part of my job role. I thought recruitment was interviewing people, and that was it. You know, and I'm really good at speaking to people. I didn't realise that there was a bit before that. It's almost like building a house. You don't just lay bricks on the floor, right? You, you have to build the foundations. Well, actually, the, the way I was thinking of it, it's probably like being in a stage and you have to sell your services and then sell the house, right? So, it, yeah, maybe similar to in recruitment. Someone going into a state agency that was yeah. naive like I was would probably just think they're just going to sell houses from day one. But where do the houses come from? And how and who am I selling for? Who am I going to be recruiting for? Yeah. What am I going to be recruiting for? How am I going to find the people? It never really crossed my mind. Um, it was more about... I probably had a point in my life when I was 20, 21, where I was lazy. And I thought this would be an easy move for when I went into recruitment because I, I, I was done with making the 60, 70 calls an hour, cold calling, telesales roles, which I was, you know, thankful for because that's where I've got all of my, I suppose, awareness, my ability, my uh, strengths from. Because if, you, if I hadn't have done that, I wouldn't be successful in recruitment. Um, because I wouldn't have done the, the, the hard bit, which is the, the, the selling and, and building a brand. Um, and then obviously tw 21, um, me and Richard both worked for a company together in industrial recruitment uh, in Northampton, which I just didn't like. Um, I weren't a fan of being in, in sort of warehouses and factories at 4am in the morning and phone ringing whenever I, you know whenever it pleased and yeah. um, I, I weren't a fan of that and I, again is that an industry thing like people just don't have boundaries in in industrial it's if you're into industrial recruitment you you have to be aware that your phone is going to, to call and you will be on call you will have hiring managers at organizations at two o'clock in the morning tell you someone has not turned up and you need to backfill that spot is is the money good in in industrial okay all right so work Horrible hours for well, less money. To be fair, yes, it probably would have been good at my age. Like, I mean, in terms of like a state agency, it's very similar. So, state agents tend to go into recruitment. Recruiters tend to go into a state agency. Um, you know, the service offering is is pretty identical. And um, so, it's very very driven in in terms of uh, well, it was bonus. So, I was on a very very low basic. My first recruitment job, I was on thirteen thirteen and a half thousand pound a year. What? How long ago was that? Uh, 13 years ago. Okay, so it's probably like 20K in today's terms, really, isn't it? 20,000 would be a junior recruiter now, maybe 2022, 20 uh, 20 um, with a bonus if you're doing really well. Um, probably earn 30 grand a year, maybe, as, as a good recruiter in an industrial firm, um, which, if you're what I at the time was 20, was earning, that's great. I was, I was living a lovely life. And Agenda Partnership came up because I just didn't want to do industrial recruitment anymore. I was very good at uh, permanent recruitment and I had a very large database of people that just used me because they knew who I was. I've done all of the, the hundred calls a day, building those relationships. If you were to use me for your recruitment, 
I could work for myself or work for somebody else, mm. you'd probably come to Tom. It's a relationship, isn't it? And that's what happens. But all I was going to say is, so when you started the gender partnership, did one of you start it first and then the other one joined or you just said, let's do it together? No, um, we, we both decided to move on from the organisation we were at. And bear in mind, Richard, uh, Richard was, what, was my regional branch manager. In recruitment terms, that from where I was, was probably three levels above me. And his earning potential, his earning expectation was so much more than mine. So he was used to earning, you know, huge amounts of numbers. When I weren't, I was 20, 10 and 21. Um, but we both said, I, me and Richard go together really, really well. So as a service person, Richard's like top tier. As a salesperson, I was, and probably still am, really good at it. So, but I was the grafter at the sales side and Richard was the uh, business manager, managed large organizations, recruitment businesses, MD level. So he had all of that awareness, whereas I was just this, if it works, it works. My risk level was so much lower than what Rich's risk level was. Um, you know, he had kids, had mortgage, you know, all has all of that now, but has had an everything that I now have. So he, his, I had to quickly get to his level really quickly. Um, and I don't mean on sort of just learning different bits about the business because Again, yin and yang, we go together really well because he, he does everything that I can't do and I do everything that he can't do. And we, we've got that arrangement where we, we're cool with that. You know, I'm not very good at this and he's very good at that and vice versa. So, why, you know, I've never had to challenge myself in a way that I'm uncomfortable with because I've been fortunate enough to have Richard there. Um, yeah. And, I've, you know, I've learned from Richard. So, I didn't, I didn't have a clue about how to run a business. I didn't have a clue on how to manage people. I didn't have a clue on anything. I was just a 21-year-old boy, probably, um, that had this opportunity. And if you would have asked me when I was 19, do I have ambition to run a business? I probably would have said no. At, at that time, when I was 21, I could have got a job somewhere else. Um, or I could have gone off and done it myself. So I had that decision was a flip a coin moment really heads are going to work with richard tails are going to find another job and be employed tomorrow um landed on heads so i went with richard you know? yeah. so that was you know over multiple pots of tea and at the time 20 cigarettes you know having a conversation about what we're going to do i i had a similar um decision to make when i when i first started this business because i really wasn't happy in in a work in, in a job i was doing and but then I realized, actually, I wasn't happy in the one before that. And I wasn't really happy in the one before that. And I, I came to the conclusion, okay, fine, I could, I could go move company. And, but what's, what's really going to change? Like, what is, what is the underlying thing that is making me unhappy um, at, at these, uh, these businesses? And ultimately, I, I came to the realization it's like not, not having the freedom to work in the way I wanted. And um, I, I know what you mean. It's just like, and I think some people have to go through quite a few jobs before they, they realise actually employment's not right for them. And I, I feel like back then, the level of risk compared to the level of risk now when you've got two kids and you've got to put food on the table and you've got to eat, it's huge. And I, I do wonder if I would have made that same decision if I had the kids. But the other side of it though is like, you know, this business is nine years old, but you know, two years ago we started building the Apex program, um, which is where we went from 
just doing the accounting work to doing like more financial management and more coaching um, and consulting. And it was almost like a restart or a startup business all over again. So in some ways I kind of feel I did, I, I did restart the business or have a startup business with the kids. But, and I think this time around, I probably felt a lot more pressure than I did the first time, but I, I, time you know raises all all the stress from back then so i think actually maybe maybe nine nine years ago when i started i, I was under a lot of pressure as well but See, that's the difference i had none of that so the decision to start my own company was so easy because i was like well, if it didn't work i'll go get another job i didn't have the mortgage the kids the wife the yeah. you know all of this stuff that for anyone now who's got that they're yeah. looking so mine and richard's story would be totally different because he had, I had it all to lose, whereas he, sorry, I, he had it all to lose. I had nothing yeah. to lose. I, well, actually, one thing I was going to say, and um, like on a psychological level, because um, I guess you've got your material things to lose or not to lose, but you, there, there's a psychological bit. And um, like you mentioned, you came from like a council estate and um, you, you had quite a, a poor up bringing so my parents are fine you know it's just like um you you didn't have as much money as other people would have and um and one thing i've noticed talking to quite a lot of business owners is the ones from a poor upbringing there's probably a better way to say that but from a working class or a um uh, where, where they had less money growing up they kind of they take more risks when they start their business than someone from like a middle class upbringing because like i, I when i grew up we didn't have much money at all but I came from a family where they, you know, people were, were doctors, where people were, um, people were, were doing really well in their careers and um, they're dentists. And th there was a lot of pressure like on me when I started this business because like ultimately I had to fit in with the rest of my family and, and um, you know, make a certain amount of money and, um, and be a certain stand standard as a professional. And I, I sometimes feel like talking to people who started the businesses from a working class upbringing, they don't necessarily have that pressure. And so they can, because not, a lot of the time, nothing, no one expected anything from them. So, and then because of that, it means they take more risks when they start the business and often they get further ahead um, because they don't have, they don't have that fear of failure. I grew up in a council estate, my mum and dad, owned the house that we lived in but it was on a council estate my, my dad was a bus driver um and my mum was the traditional stay-at-home mum so it was, i've got two brothers that are both older than me um you know that one of them i had to look out for a lot because he's, he's got autism um and went through a different stage of his life differently so I kind of my mentality has always been i don't care what the result might be and and someone, so I, I hear the phrase, you, you, oh, you're so lucky. I'm, I'm not lucky. I just, I just live a mentality that says, if it will be, it will be. If it ain't, it ain't. And you know, that, that, if you sit in, I don't worry about nothing. And people go, why do you worry about it? Because if that doesn't come off, I'll do something out. Like I will go here or do that. And I think that's helped me, my mentality personally, because that helps my drive. If I put, a, a blocker on something that says if you don't get to here then you failed or um you need to go and find something else to do or whatever it might be i just don't have that thought process so i just i see the end goal and i just keep moving if that end goal keeps getting further and further away i'm still going in the right direction 
that's that's probably the easiest way to describe how I think about my days and how I think yeah. about you know where am I going to be in five years? I don't know. I, I wish I could adopt that mentality a bit actually because I worry about a lot of stuff. Like um, and I, I think. There was a time, you know, when I started my business, I was worried about what other people would think if I wasn't successful in it. And then when I was, uh, after a point in my business and we, we built it up and I, then I stopped being less worried. I, I stopped being worried about that. But then I started being worried about, hey, if this business fails, I might have to get a job. And I was like, I can't work for someone. I, it was just, it was something I just could not do as part of my core. Um, and then, so I started worrying about that. I was like, okay, this business cannot fail. And then you, you, we bring on staff and then, you know, your staff become your family to some extent. And then you're like, oh, actually, you know, I, I, fine. I, I don't have to ever have to work for anyone again because if something went wrong, I could always just be an accountant and do, do things myself. But what, what about those guys? And then eventually I, I get to the mindset, well, you know, we, we've always focused on developing our people, giving them the right skill set, the right soft skills, the right technical skills. Like, you know, maybe I shouldn't worry about them because they'll always be able to go and get a job somewhere if, if they needed to. And gradually I'm, I'm getting to a point and where I, I'm kind of, I'm becoming less worried about stuff. But I think one of the things though is like, like sometimes I, I envy people who come from a sales background because you, your biggest asset is your ability to just pick up that phone. And wherever you are in your life, if you've got a phone or if you, if you can just go talk to someone, you can, you can do that. Whereas for me, like, you know, one of my biggest assets was being a chartered management accountant, but gradually like, you know, I've, I've got a place in my career where I feel like, you know, the re I really wouldn't want to go back to the ground roots of doing, doing all that accounting stuff. I, I like what I do on the consulting side, but there's always a I think there's always a lot of mindset stuff when you're when you're scaling a business. It's it's like you know, in in fact the in re relatively although the finances are, are complex, the 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 mind and and all the limiting beliefs and all, all the things that are holding you back, all, all the irrational things that are holding you back from making the right decision, they they really do come into it, and you, and you're always you're always trying to deal with that. Even in about personal life, people will say to me, Tom, why don't you worry about this? Well, Tom, why? Don't you? If I worry, I won't get there. That that's literally how I think, you know. So I, obviously, I think about everyone around me. The my awareness of people, my emotional intelligence is really high. I'm aware about what my thought process might do to something else or to someone else. Or I'm very, I, I don't really talk about how I handle things mentally because I just go. I just. I just go. Mm. And and again, that's where me and Rich go really well. Rich is a really analytical thinker. Whereas I'm a I'm I've just do it. I'm like, how would I describe it? it like a hitman, right? If you I, I'm not gonna plan, you just tell me where and I'll do it. You know, that's that's kind of my mentality. That's probably the easiest way to describe it. I'm not a hitman by the way. No, no, it's someone you know, I don't I don't plan anything and it I just get there. And I think maybe I'll do that so I'm not, I don't feel like I haven't achieved something because I haven't, I don't know what I'm trying to achieve. I've just achieved it. Does that make sense? So instead of going, right, I'm going to, I'm going to build a business that turns over a million pounds or I'm going to build a business that turns over 5 million pounds. I'm just going to do it. And then I'm going to look back at it and go, like me, I've got a business that turns over 5 million pounds. So I'm not going to plan my way there. And, but Richard would plan his way there. 
So actually, he pulls me back sometimes because I'm just kind of a. I've still got that bit between my teeth where I don't mind doing business development. I, I, I'm never going to be above doing business development. I'm never going to be above being the guy that goes to a networking event. I, I always want to do that stuff. I always want yeah. to be involved in it um, because in recruitment, you you gain a brand in yourself. If everything went to part with Agenda Partnership today, I know full well that I could go somewhere else, right? But that's because people will come with me People don't necessarily know a gender partnership. They know Tom, or they know Richard, or they know Joe. You know, so that that's kind of your, your relationships are the biggest asset you'll ever have, actually. And um, I think a lot of business owners forget that. Like the way you're making it sound, I'd say say if, if you if it was a war, you'd be the assault force, and then Richard comes along with the supply supplies and. Uh, Richard would look at the the assault force and work out how he's going to get through everything in timings. So he'll go, right, if if I've got five minutes to do this, I'll get over that wall, I'll take a 30 second rest, I'll go, where's where's this old course? I'm doing it. If I if I complete it, great. If I don't complete it, I haven't thought about what I could have done to do it better. A lot of partnerships I've I've seen, um that's usually how it works. Like one one person like just just has the energy and the momentum to go out and grow it. Then the other one comes along and dots the eyes and crosses the t's and um and that's a really important one because i don't want to say richard's not go get it because no. he really is he he thinks about it but it's a very important job isn't it he thinks that you know in and uh, um, if we were to define our job roles in an organization richard would be the managing director of agenda yeah. partnership i feel the sales director or sales job titles have never ever 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 phased me ever um even in organizations where i might have been the top earner or yeah. top biller but my job title might have been Service assistant, probably like I didn't, I didn't never care. I never had the ambition to chase a job title. It was, it was really all about earnings for me yes. when I was younger. Um, and it's you know, my life's changed obviously because I'm now married, got two kids, got mortgage, you know, business properties and stuff like that. So it, it, I've got more to risk now than I've ever had, but my mentality has not changed to, oh, what am I going to do if, or mm, how am I going to get there, or I'm just going to get there. People get caught up on the cons. Just think about the pros and the cons become a pro. You mentioned you're in your 11th year of the business. So that puts you in the top 36%, I think. Um, and one thing I've noticed is the kind of people that have to work out pros and cons before they go into the business, they'll never get, get to that 11th year because it's, I don't think I've ever come across a business owner who had to think about it. It was, it was just something they felt like, you know, and, and before they started their business, something didn't feel right in their lives. And when they started that business, it did feel right. Mine was a flip of a coin, heads or tails, and it landed on heads. But, but if it landed on tails, you'd probably still start your business just maybe a year later. I don't think we would have because, it, it, you know, I, I can't describe how further forward Richard was in his life to how much I didn't yeah. have because of age, I didn't have children, all that sort of stuff, which makes a huge, like you said earlier about decision-making, I never had any of that. So my decision was so easy. Whereas all the risk really sat on Richard because we're 50-50 partners. If Richard was used to earning X amount a year, a month or what, I had to be dragged into that. So I was I was all for it because I've never earned so much money in my life. But that never changed my mentality where some people might you know, if you if you start earning certain numbers, 
people will then start resting back on their laurels and going, this is this is wicked. I don't have to work as hard anymore. Um, I'd have never had that. I just remember first year of trading was difficult. It was, you know, we had, I can't remember what our turnover was. It was something so, so small. I, I was shocked at the point. I was like, is this going to work? Because I had this mentality where this is going to be easy because I've got all these clients that already know me. I think we only turned over like 56 grand in our first year. And I was like, I said to Richard, like, wow, this, this is, this is bad. Like, this is, I'm earning less than what I was earning working for somebody else. And, and then all of a sudden just got this momentum and it was just like, boom, boom, boom. It just spiraled on from there. How we got into training is probably quite a, quite an important topic as well, because again, this is, this is not a deliberate thing that we did. It just happened. Um, and how that happened was we, we work for large PLC and that was initially, uh, recruiting. So we recruited fixed term contractors into their, uh, training teams. And then six months later, they decided that that program was going to be for three years and okay. they had a recruitment freeze, believe it or not, and they couldn't recruit these people again through even on fixed term contracts. So they had, we, we indirectly became a contract recruitment business at that point. And then they said, right, we've got these five people, but now we need you to, to give us another 15 more. So all of a sudden we've got 20 associate trainers that are working in a large PLC. We're doing a very good day rate on, um, huge problems of cash flow at that point, because we, we always had in our mind, we pay the contracts regardless of we've been paid or not. Right. So I remember the biggest pain, the biggest, biggest pain that we had, and it was Christmas Eve. And this it was in the year 2017, I think it was, um, this, this invoice, it was a substantial amount, um, that wasn't paid when it was supposed to be paid. We didn't have to pay the contractors until the day after boxing day or something like that. But we were like, no, we're going to pay our contractors before Christmas. Um, and I just remember it being a very large sum of money and it, it nearly broke us to the point of, you know, if this invoice didn't land, we're, we're, we're done. Like we're done. Um, and for, I think it was like four forty-five. you know, fresh in on the, uh, the online banking, you know, is it landed, is it landed, is it landed, came in and we were like, never want, never want to be in that position again. Never ever do we want to be in that position again. What, what have you changed to um, make sure you're well in that initial? Negotiated our terms. Okay. Um, we've been stricter with our terms of business. I think when we when we landed that project and that, that and we still work with them now, you know, we're we're in our ninth year of working with them, and that contract is substantial for us. You know, it's a really big contract, and it it generates hundreds of thousands of pounds a year in in profit, not even just in revenue. It's, it's probably millions in revenue, but profit is obviously um, taken away from that. But it, it we've just learned that we needed to be stricter with the client. Yeah. We we weren't going to be there for them. Because we, we sat there for, why are these guys working with us? How have we done this? Um, and, and sometimes you scratch your head and go, why is that organization working with me and Richard? At the time, it was me and Richard. And I think we had three employees at the time. So it was about five of us. Why are they working with us? And it was probably just down to personality. It was down to liking working with us, whether they, they didn't know how big we were or how small we were, should I say. And we were still scratching our head. Why are these people working with us? Um, and we just thought, do you know what? We can't put ourselves in that position anymore. So 
regardless of whether we lose the contract or not, we're going to strap it on and we're going to tell them we can't work to these 120 days, um, you know, payment terms that you're asking us for. We've got our contractors on, some of them on seven days, some of them on 14 days, you know, and they were working five days a week for, for large sums of money. We were having to wait months before we even, you know, at some points we were, you know, maybe even owed about half a million pounds, you know, in, you know, and it was, it got to a point of going, we can't do this anymore. We can't sustain this. So, you know, recruitment was almost propping up the training business. And we're like, that can't happen either. We're relying on us doing really well in recruitment just so we could do training. Um, but anyway, we fast forward to where we are now, where we've gone through all those real pinch points and pain points from cash flow issues or um, learning about training. And, and actually what we have got is a lovely associate board of people, great people, um, that have supported us in our journey to develop what I've got here, which I'm going to show to the camera, which is our prospectus, uh, which we've worked really hard to design, um, not just to make it look nice, but it's the material that's inside it. You know, it's been, it's been designed, um, by, you know, people that many years of experience it sounds like you've um you've understood the risk we're just working with like one really big customer so it looks like you try to diversify your yeah. your client base a lot more and i think we had a customer who um who went into liquidation recently and i did i did warn them like a, a long time ago but they had like one big customer that was making like 70 percent of of their turnover and those guys just pulled the plug overnight and that the business the business just went went under but um one of the things i always talk to clients about is is like you know if you've just got that one big customer it does impact the sale value of your business because it's more risk you know to get again increase the value of your business you're always trying to de-risk your business as much as possible whether that's a customer leaving whether that's a member of staff leaving whether that's you yourself leaving and um but the other side of uh, uh, the other th thing i wanted to know is uh, so what does your team look like now what what does your business look like now it's heavy on associates uh for obviously delivering training recruitment at the moment is uh myself and two two people so there's three of us um we've got to a point of we we grew the business to multiple locations um just before covid um and because there were multiple locations um w you know we had to make decisions on where is our head office going to be? And, you know, at the time, were people going to be able to work from home? It was still like, a, who knows? Because it was, you know, this is probably a month after lockdown. And we'd done the best we could to get, you know, keep people win our team. Some people decided that they didn't want to work from home full time, believe it or not. And we're like, okay, so you want to become an employee? Fine, okay. Um, so we lost a few people on the way. Um, over our 11 years, you know, we've had some really great people. Um, you know, and some people have gone off to do it on their own journey, you know, and open their own recruitment businesses, which we can't stop people from doing that. Uh, it's not nice, um, but it's quite nice to know that we've probably raised them enough to be able to do that. Um, yeah. You know, and, and people that had six months of recruitment experience came to work with us for three or four years, got all this lovely experience, and then gone with it themselves, you know. Um, and that's a big risk in recruitment. People start recruitment companies all day, every day. And you could work in your bedroom, you know, doing recruitment. It, it, people wouldn't know, would they? I guess the, the barrier to entry, um, there isn't really a barrier to entry in terms of setting up a business, but there is a barrier to entry in terms of building up your contacts. Apart, if I decided today that I'm going to start a state agency, I'd have to probably go through some exams. I'd have yeah. to go, you know, that, that's what I mean in terms of entry. If you decided today, 
I'm going to recruit for accountants for my clients. So yeah. I'm going to, that you can just start niche recruitment if you wanted to. There's no, and, you know, there is a bit of money that you'd need to invest into yeah. you know, job boards and marketing and all that sort of stuff. But there's nothing stopping you from doing it. Well, I think the thing that would get in my way is I'm I'm naturally not great at just picking up the phone and cold calling. Um, but, it, you know, it, that's a mindset thing. And that, one thing I did want to do is actually do some training on being able to do that. Because one thing I've noticed, people who can do that, they've got, they've got that security because they know that they will always be able to do that. And I think I, w- I want to be one of those people. We're really good at recruiting accountants, and but w- right, we, we haven't always had the best of luck with salespeople though. I think that's the only, uh, that was the only challenge for us. So we've, but it's quite good that you've been able to build up that recruitment team, that sales team. I guess people are always good at recruiting what they do themselves. Joe, the hardest thing is recruiting a good recruiter. It's the, it's the what, why is it so hard? Um, for many reasons, really. If you're a successful recruiter, you will either stay put or you'll start on your own. Okay. Okay. So if you're if you're top biller, the word the phrase top biller in in recruitment is you're just the best in the business, right? So top biller. If you're a top biller in your business, you're probably earning too much money to have the motivation to move, or you're going to go and do it yourself. Um, and you're not really accessible to recruiters unless you're going for a headhunt. Um, so there is such thing as a rec to rec. So recruiters that re- recruit recruiters for recruiters. Okay, that's a specialist little thing because they can they use all their headhunting functions and build relationships with good recruiters and sell them on to recruitment company. But that applies to business development managers as well, just because some, someone's really good at sales, that their business isn't going to let them go. That's another thing. You, I would say I don't know the exact stat on it, but I would probably estimate eighty percent of recruiters don't like business development and that would be another you know coming from an organization where you might not have to do much bd um because you've been there such a such a while you've, you've just created your accounts yeah. or you're an account manager or you, you just you're just okay with what you've got to then move on to do it somewhere else you know where you're going to have to build a new desk where you're going to have to do development business development or you yeah. take some clients just to give you a bit of a leg up when you're going to have to do that graft bit and that's the bit that people don't want to do um, for one reason or another. Not comfortable doing it, don't like doing it. Um, people still, then seem to think that I'll go into internal recruitment because it becomes a lot easier. Yeah. Um, does it? You just don't have the BD bit. Um, you, you're still yeah. selling uh, because you've still got to engage with stakeholders. You've still got to be able to hold your ground. You've still yeah. got to be aware. You know what, though? I'd, I'd argue if someone's in an industry and they want to take an easy option then they should really be asking themselves should they be in that industry because like because that mean that's just them saying well i don't they don't want to develop essentially isn't it i would i would say but i can see sometimes there's opportunities to go internal which are very hard to pass or come across that you're not going to get the opportunities to again um you know there's going to be you take companies like apple for example if someone from knocks on your door and went come and be the head of recruitment for apple and no, i don't want to go internal i'm quite happy with my, you know being at a warehouse in the morning you know checking my temps in there's that carrot that's going to be dangled but if you're coming out of agency which is normally a red flag to other agency owners is oh so what's better you to move on from you're doing really well I don't want to do the sales anymore I'm bored of it okay or I don't want to do the resourcing which is the the finding the candidate bit so what 
What do you call it? So you want to take away either fifty percent of the the graft or the fifty percent of the bit that actually is the make the way you make money. Um, you don't make money by building relationships with people. Um, you know, and 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 again, I I used it. To, I don't want to come across as someone that, that that uses recruitment as a money making exercise, right? Yeah. But that's also something else that you define. It's the bigger the organisation you go into. So if you work for a large corporate recruitment business, you're so driven that people start to become a commodity and people see pound signs on people and that is not what i do uh, and that's not what i see i don't want you to think that this person's just a pound sign you, you know you you you're helping this person with their life that's how i look at it yeah. um, and it gets a bit deeper than that if you want to be deep with it because you could why would i move you from here to put you here if I know you're going to fail and you've already told me you've got kids, you've already told me you've got a mortgage yeah. and that decision to move from there to there is hard anyway. So to make it even more of a, oh, go on, you, you'll be really good at it. I never give opinions like that. I never give any advice like that. Mine is if it feels right, it's right. If it don't feel right, hey, right. Following on from that um, question earlier about building the recruitment team, what I think what I'm trying to, what I'm sort of inferring from this is Ultimately, if you can't get high-end people to really move, so you've got to you've got to nurture people from from a more junior level. You know, you could be a really good recruiter if you're a really solid salesperson, because that is the hardest bit. And um, the the bit between client relations, the how to find candidates, how do you treat candidates, brand awareness, uh, candidate experience, that can all be taught. But if you were to bring somebody into in a business that's never picked up the telephone before, can never do, doesn't want to do telesales effectively, cold calling, business development, whatever you want to label it as, they're going to fail because the phone doesn't ring itself and everyone in recruitment will know branch managers out there will go, phone's not going to dial itself. You know, yeah. You're going to have to, you know, that phone's not going to call for you. Um, you're going to have to call that that person for them to know you. Um, you know, there's, there's marketing tools out there, you know, if you're emailing somebody, it takes like, within nine emails to even get a response, you know, you're not going to sell on your first call. Mm. And that's important for people to know too. It's not about selling on your first call. It's about introducing yourself, you know, and, and actually that's something I've learned over the, the, the last 11 years, maybe my approach to selling is different. And I don't know why I've just sort of tweaked it a little bit where I'm going, do you know what, actually I'm, I'm not. I'm not aggressive in my sales, my, my sales, and I don't come across as aggressive, needy. All this stuff's really important when you're selling, not not to come across like. And actually, it's about listening. So listening to somebody is more important than questioning. Questioning has its place, you know. But if you're asking the right questions and you listen, then your job's being done for you in, in selling. Um, and it's you know people can identify. Um, sales opportunities or buying signals and all this sort of stuff um you know but it's about how you react to that i mean this is a journey we've been on as well like um when we build the apex program before we used to get loads of our clients from seo um, pay-per-click advertising and you know someone needed an accountant and an ad there saying hey we're accountants it was, it was quite an easy thing but what you then find is they'd be shopping around on price and we'd um and a lot of the time because they would trying to do something urgently they weren't always the best client either sometimes they're great clients but when we built when we built more of a consulting and coaching solution and financial management solution 
like the, the whole relying on sales urgency didn't work anymore because it, it was all about building a reputation and credibility and we we've had to we, we nurture customers potential customers in a different way like you know we have lead magnets and um we we have um content and and um events uh, th things like that and it's uh, but i do and also there's there's advertising everywhere these days so you've really got to be really specific about who you're helping and and give them something that they want or they'll find useful if i'm talking to a customer that I know full well is using eight of agencies. I'm seeing myself out of it. I'm not going to be involved in it. And the client will know that. Yeah. If you're using five of agencies on this, mm. you do not need me. If you want to use two agencies, that's fine. If you want to use one, then use me. But I'm not being involved in the rates. Even from their point of view, that must be really inefficient, having to like manage that many different relationships. Their mindset is, if you're casting it out far enough, you're going to catch a whale, right? Yeah. It, but if... You just want, you don't need a whale. If you could just imagine that if you're looking for a salesperson, you approach me and say, Tom, can you support me with this? Um, I go, yeah, sure. Let's have the brief. How serious are you? I'm going to do my due diligence effectively going, what is it you need from me? Um, and then you say to me, no, I've, I've spoken to seven of agencies about this as well. And they're looking, I'm going to go, you know, do to, to just paint this picture. Those seven of several agencies are doing exactly what I'm doing. Okay. There's a network. That's probably the advantage of, of using someone different is they might know someone that we don't know. Uh, but effectively, if you're using five high street agencies, uh, we're not high street, but if you're using five high street agencies, they're all throwing an advert out there, but they're getting the same applications. They're all, they're all registering the same candidates, clients. They're all using the same job boards, which they're all searching on. If you can just picture a lonely person fishing yeah in a in a puddle there and then bring in five other people to put their rod into that puddle and hope you're going to catch a fish it's not going to work if you all go fishing in the atlantic then that's fine you know if you're all fishing this massive sea you're all going to get different fish different shapes different sizes right well i think you're raising a good point because one one thing i i found that was quite useful when we've worked together in the past is you don't rely on me to tell you the job role that I need. You, it's it's more consultative. So it's like, you know, what what is the the person? What do they need to do in in the sense? What what will their responsibilities be? What kind of person do you need? And then essentially we're then creating the job role from that. And I think that makes a lot of sense because sometimes I've found with the recruiters in the past, it's just like you, you give them a job title. And it, they don't question it. They it's just like job title, and that's where a lot of the time it goes wrong. Because I think a lot of business owners, they you know they know what they need as a team, but sometimes they don't always know how to structure that role. And then what will happen is you can end up getting a good candidate into your business, but then they will get frustrated because the role hasn't been structured right, or maybe it was misadvertised because it, the the thing you said it was was actually a different type of job to what it turned out to be. But this is the you know. If someone's using fiber radiances and they want me to support them at the same time, um, what advantage do I have of over somebody that might not be a business owner and has never recruited a salesperson before or hasn't got the same background as what I've got in terms of I'm, I've been sales contact center for many years, right? And before recruitment and then recruitment is still sales. So I am what you're looking for. I'd understand their determination, I'd understand their ambitions, all this stuff, which is either going to be really good for you or really bad.
if if you're if you're not asking the right questions, then I, I am giving you a job title. I'm giving you someone that might have done tennis hours before. I don't know 100% that that person's going to do well in your organization, but I'm 80% sure they'll fit. You know, I'm not 20% sure. That 20% is the, the unknown for me because I don't work here. You know, that, that I'll always have that in my mind going, this person has the attributes, the ability, the motivation, the, the backgrounds to do it. Now that 20% is how well do they fit in when they're here and are they going to be able to do the job correctly are they going to be able to excel all that stuff that's the bit i don't know um and i will never know and that goes for every everyone in the and every yeah, but some recruiters might not think of it like that they'll just go i don't i don't care i'm making money aren't i you know and it's going towards my kpi i don't have a kpi that might be another usb i don't work towards a target i don't have meeting i've got to have 15 meetings a week yeah. you know 25 interviews out 16 place whatever i don't have that target so that might help me not and that's why we don't really i mean we've got targets for our consultants but they're not aggressive targets they're not because people start fluffing about and start panicking it's, if you panic you're gonna sink you know we all know the say if you go to school just lay back right relax you won't sink but people that are under pressure start panicking which then start sinking and it, it it's just a you, you go down at that point there's you know so our our real target for our consultants is this is it right get get to here that that is whether we want you to build this much a year um how you get there that's down to you you know if if you want to work nine till three and and have a four-hour lunch break you know that's down to you if you do not get here that's that's the problem right so if you're if you're setting someone that target they will achieve it because they've got that flexibility to yeah. get there we're not sitting there going, so how many dollars you made today? Yeah. How many interviews you've tomorrow? How many meetings you've been on this week? Yeah. That's the pressures that people get in other organizations, bigger businesses, branches and stuff. We don't we don't target people like that. To have that mentality, you really gotta trust people, I think, because but actually, yeah, it does make sense. You, you probably if you hire if you hire right and you, you do trust them and you, you know they're motivated by the right things, then actually you can be a bit more hands off. Uh, and and let them be free to go achieve stuff. I think where a lot of business owners probably struggle from what I've seen is like they don't their their expectations like you know someone comes in they're effective like two months later and really like you know it can take six months to a year for that kind of um, candidate and um, maybe that's why a lot of businesses never try and build a sales team um, because they just can't, they can't play a long enough game or they can't they don't have the cash flows to sustain a long enough game. But it's so it's such an important part of. I prefer to, to recruit for smaller businesses than I do yeah. bigger businesses because the thought process behind it is a lot more um, than working for a large PLC. It's quite hit and it's easy come easy go. You know, yeah. it, it, you know I've got big client, big organization clients. That I sit there and go, wow, why, am I, how, why are they working with me, right? Well, but they, I, I'm not saying I prefer to work with smaller businesses over that, um, but I just feel like I get something, I get something out of supporting a smaller business. You know, we've got a mutual connection that I've supported, yeah. and what that's done for him and his business could, could catapult him forward, right? Just from recruiting two heads, and, and now to be fair, it's, it's been three, four heads into his organization but he from two recruits has, yeah. has given him probably 60 percent of his time back what would you say the people's challenge and penalty of business just as we've been grubbing scandal um covid was um was actually quite okay for us um we we're generalists 
which yeah. which meant that some of our clients shut quite literally shut the door yeah. where other clients were doubling their ships you know and some of them were producers manufacturers to the nhs some of them yeah. were producing health um vitamins and stuff so they were everyone was getting on the health kick yeah. so they were doubling in size they were they were transport logistics companies that we helped support um growing a customs team of about 100 120 people uh, in in sort of 18 months so i i was kept really busy through through covid um you know which was great we we didn't know what direction we were going to go you know yeah. lockdown was announced and and that was you know one of those moments again where similar to the cash flow um you had it was almost like um it was every everything was just getting knocked down so you you'd made all these placements people were due to start new jobs people had left jobs people it was a tough really tough time you had all of these people lined up to start work with a new new client or new business within the next sort of two weeks or so and we were getting call after call after call after call saying can't start this person can't start this person can't start this person and then we're like okay fair enough so we could just see literally everything was being eliminated from the ledger you know it was like boom 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 and then all and then that wasn't the hard bit the hard bit was then getting in touch with the candidate and going you were supposed to be starting here on monday they can't well i've handed him a notice and you know, I, I feel really bad i had nothing i can do you know it was tough that bit was really tough um cash flow was obviously the the biggest issue that we had many sort of i say many years ago it was only about five or six years ago that was the real sort of pinch point um you know, gross, um, you know, recruiting good recruiters is tough. Um, we were in a location which really didn't help us. Um, we, we were, I think that was the motivation. And that's why we opened, I opened a site in Milton Keynes. Oh. And I recruited more people in Milton Keynes in six months than I had in five years of being in seven location. Yeah. So location was a real big thing for us um, at the time. So we, we know, we noticed that, but we were comfortable um so we we got comfortable that was another pre pitch point when you get comfortable you, yeah. you don't want to you know you don't want to get uncomfortable do you uh, yeah. it's so I, th I think you've mentioned a few things the location seems like quite a relevant one um but again okay, and what's next for the agenda partnership so training is is growing massively i think you know, recruitment is is growing too um I think the the recruitment business will certainly remain at the level it's at, and we'll, we'll add, we will add additional heads to that in the next twelve months. You know, when you say recruitment is growing, I, I, I just so I can get my head around it, because th there's a shortage of a half a million people in the workforce at the moment, isn't there? That's all the people that retired early, or maybe that don't want to work because furlough taught them not to work. Um, so that would lead me to believe it was shrinking but then is it just because you have to fight a lot harder to go and get those candidates now so actually there's more work to do which means so, yeah. so some organizations that you, you would have worked with before yeah. uh, uh, let's say you recruited maybe three people a year for okay now because they were doing their own their own recruitment internally they, they were they weren't struggling to find people at that time and now all of a sudden they're going, we can't find this person, you're going to have to help us. So those free recruits that you were doing before for that business before is now turned into 15. So in terms of what I mean by recruitment's busy is more vacancies land on our desk daily than, than they ever have before. It's a, essentially because there's a lot more competition in the market, the internal recruiters, are they don't have the skill set to 
So recruitment's gone harder, so the internal recruiters don't have the skill set. And businesses are still growing. I don't want anyone to have the perception of all oh, going into recession. No. I've not even had a conversation yet that we're going to we're going to stop yeah. until we get out of this. You know, see what the next six months. We're not have that conversation with anybody. Motivation's like boom, we're growing. So for me, like we've always overstaffed, and but now more than ever is uh, it, it's just proving to me why you need to do that because when someone leaves it's it takes longer to replace them so it, and if you don't want like you know operational gaps then you've got to you you've got to do that essentially and um and, and maybe that's what's happening as well a lot of these companies there where before they might have had you know 10 members of staff now they'll probably have 12 members of staff to do the same amount of work and then um you know free people up for training things like that obviously the cash flows and the margins need need to work but yeah, I can, I can imagine a lot of a lot of the jobs out there are just because um, people are factoring it takes longer to recruit. There's 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 natural attrition as well in organisations, um, which people go, "Well, oh, how's that equation work then?" Because if people are not leaving jobs, how does that mean there's natural attrition in in businesses? But there's growth, there's attrition. Um, so we don't know about every opportunity in in the world, you know. Um, yeah. And we're not just we don't just recruit from Northampton-based organisations, you know. We're not just Northamptonshire. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I've got clients everywhere, um, literally everywhere, and I've recruited as far as China, yeah. you know. And I've, recru- I've recruited in Madrid, I've recruited in in Italy, you know. But that's they're, they're for UK-based organisations that yeah. recruit in in those areas. Um, no, I'm not I'm not picturing myself as a and a European recruiter, by the way. No, no, no. Um, but in terms of location, it it, it doesn't really doesn't really matter. Um, you know, when we've always been generalist and we've always had clients everywhere, and that stems back to my time with selling online advertising because people were it didn't matter where you were really because you were putting advert online. Um, so that client base that I was growing there followed me in in different places, and they could be in Newcastle, they could be in Sheffield, they could be in Wimbledon. You know, it, it, I'm I'm based here, but I support all these locations everywhere. Um, so, it, I mean, again, it's nicer to work with local people because you can give it a little bit of a different feel. Um, because being in Wimbledon, interviewing with people, is is you know, it's not nice. Well, it's nice, but it ain't it's not. You know, it's not something you want to do Monday to Friday, is it? Right. Um, so, but you know, going back to your book. Uh, sort of growth I suppose for us recruitment uh, is going to grow uh, training has just ridiculous um, it's a weird it's great really great um, so we will be growing uh, not just in terms of investment so uh, the office that we've we'll hopefully over the next by the time this goes out I might even been exchanged on mm-hmm. um, that that's going to be our training centre um, so it, it's a it's big enough office um, to, to house us a training centre and probably a tenant or two as well so okay. it's it's far too big for us right but it was there it was an opportunity it's definitely an investment worth it it's you, you got to take those offices as they come up like we, yeah. we found it, like we always we had an office that we were too small to really fit in but then we grew to fit the office um, but that office hadn't come up for rent for about 17 years before then so um, so when you when you do find that perfect place you just gotta you just gotta get on it and and that's uh, one of the decisions about growing a business really you gotta you gotta invest today and then get that return like you know later down the line and a lot of people don't have the confidence to do that but again I, I just see as most of the stuff we've done is organic you know, we, we had an opportunity, we took the opportunity, we ran with the opportunity. And now we, like I said, we're, we're in our 
ninth year of delivery and training we've only really over the last 18 to 24 months gone do you know what why are we not selling this to our existing customer base as much as people want to recruit they want to develop and retain um so that's been a you know a growing growth area for the business and this is where i've changed my direction business development i'm now starting to look at affiliate they're building relationships with people that can also go off to sell what we're doing because they're having conversations with people all the time about the pitch points and and the two pinch points that a HR consultancy will come across is recruitment and development. So, you know, people that I'm, I'm working with really successfully. Um, and it's just a base, a case story of um, developing those relationships. Perfect. And I guess uh, really what I wanted to ask you is what advice would you give to someone starting up? If you're thinking about it, just do it. Um, if you don't know certain things, you will get to learn them very quickly because there's not a rule book. There's not a handbook to start like being a parent. You're not told how to be a parent. You just, you just you pick it up, right? <laughs> Literally, the baby's born, I'm a dad or I'm a mum. I've got to learn how to, to look up for this child, right? Similarly with business, if you decide to start a business, do you need investment? If you do, be careful what you, how you choose that investment. We didn't have any investment. This this business was started by my my own money and Richard's own money. Um, we've never looked at investment, never you know, never borrowed a penny of anybody, um, and we will remain that way. Just be vigilant on that, I think, um, because I know people that have owned businesses that have had investment, and it's never it's never normally ended well. Um, as a small business, one one thing I've realised is like having loans or investment or funding early on in a business some people would look at it as like a really good benefit but i've always looked at it as a curse and the reason for that is at the beginning of when you start your business you don't actually know what you're doing and the problem with not knowing what you're doing and having investment is you blow the money really really quickly so well, I've always found like, you know, at the beginning of a business, you, you, you learn when you're learning stuff, once you've understood what, how to grow your business, once you've understood how to run your operations, that's when the investment then can come, can, can come in really handy. Do, do what you're good at and let other people do what you're not good at. So there's services out here like accounting and marketing and recruitment and other areas that if you're not good at it, don't try and do it. Because you'll, it'll cost you more money to unfix a problem that you've created. Really no need to create it. Um, and yes, people might think, oh, I'm a small business, I'm a growing business, I can't afford to pay for marketing or I can't afford to employ somebody or pay a recruiter to recruit somebody. Whatever the situation might be, just if you can't, then at least seek advice. And uh, I, again, I'm quite lucky and fortunate enough that I didn't do it on my own. And I had someone that was far, far further forward than what I was academically, uh, experience-wise, all of this stuff you know, was way smarter than me. This is way smarter than me. So I had that luxury to fall back on someone else that knew the answer. But I've learned some stuff along the way. I, I would just say, if you can't do it, just just don't try and do it. Don't hold back. If you're, if, if you're thinking about doing it, then just commit yourself to do it. The longer you think about doing it, you are not going to do it. You're right, yeah. You're just not. Uh, if you have this thought in your mind and you're writing a business plan and you're 
you're thinking I'm going to become a millionaire in four years time have that vision absolutely have that vision but don't don't beat yourself up about it if you're not where you need to be and that's why I said earlier on I never set that ambition you know am I going to be a millionaire I'm not a millionaire will I be a millionaire probably you gave me a really interesting st- a statistic a, a while ago but uh, and I think it was just something about the average amount of time someone stays in a job um, do, you, do you have that to hand? I think, was it like most most people are in a job for about two years? Uh, it's, I mean, the average could be, I, 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 don't, I don't know the, the correct data on that. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, you're going to get people that are in lifetime jobs. Uh, people that have been in a organisation for many years, yeah. celebrating their 40th working year anniversary in the business. But then that's different these days. Now, my granddad's, worked for um perkins which was like a construction company in one of years yeah. ago. he celebrated his 50th anniversary working anniversary of that business and he only ever worked there and he started working and retired there and you just don't get that anymore why don't you get that anymore uh i, I don't know the answer but if it was me personally i think other opportunities always bring themselves to you um and the way that people worked back then to now is totally different as well. Um, you think of, you know, even apprentices these days, you know, school leavers, you ask any of them what they want to do when when they leave school, it's probably going to be led around social media or digital marketing. Um, I did this interesting volunteering uh, for a, I can't remember the name of the, the, the business. I was in Milton Keynes. And yeah. basically, all they did is they reached out to business owners um, and asked if they would be interviewed by school, uh, by year 10s, 11s, right. et cetera. And you, had, you were sat here and there were three of them and it was like a speed dating thing. You know, they just kept on one free and then they'll move on. The other next three come over, right? Okay. They could ask you anything they wanted, absolutely anything they wanted. And you could choose if you answered it or not, right? So the obvious question that a lot of them said is, what car did you drive? Um, or uh, how much money did you make? Or whatever. The question that you don't have to answer. Um, and I reckon out of maybe 500 students that I spoke to, probably a handful actually asked me, what did you do for a living? Oh, really? Okay. Uh, how did you get into the position you're in now in terms of how did you fall into your current role because they were just all interested in the materialistic stuff and actually you could ask one question back and what I asked all three of them is what do you want to do when you leave school and I would say maybe 70% or more said digital marketing social media something to do with the internet okay all right (laughs) you asked my granddad that when he was probably a 14 year old starting work at that you know in his day what do you want to do when you grow up he would have he would have just said probably go work with my dad's driving a tractor or something you know at the age of 14 um you know going down the mines or whatever you know it's just not the same thing um mm. that's why i think you know people don't stay in jobs long 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 time uh, long term now is just too many opportunities come there's more entrepreneurs in the, in the country now there's more people that are willing to take that risk um you know and, and people just will move on it's organic you know whenever i recruit for myself i expect a five-year life cycle if that person's going to leave in, in, in five years or so because it's just natural people relocate you know people might date someone in 
a different country and end up moving. Um, people have a, a, a midlife crisis and go, I'm going to up my stuff and move to Australia. And whatever it might be, that those sorts of natural things are going to happen. Um, and that's that's why I think, you know, to the answer to why do people not do it long term, um, in answer to what is the average of, I mean, I've seen so many, speak to so many people, I would say the average is probably about two years that I've seen, you know, because you do, you get the occasional one that's been there forever and you get the occasional one that's been there for six months and then you've got the ones in between there, like maybe two or three years, maybe five years, it, you know, again, is that acceptable in a CV? I don't, I don't know. I don't think it really matters. Um, I guess it depends on the organisation, doesn't it? Uh, so many people are caught up on, oh, this candidate, Tom, is, um, has only worked for his current business for four years, but poor, before that, he had three jobs in two months. You're like, okay, ignore that bit and look at what he's doing right now. But then people are quick to look at a negative. This guy's top villa, done this, done that, done yeah. this, been here four years, looking for it. But Tom, let's just track you back to 20... 14 when he only worked this company for looks like three months okay that was 2014 you know we're now in 2023 i've always i've always said to my team up maybe it's a bit of a negative thing to say to them but i've always said to them that you know um people remember you for or people judge you for the three percent of stuff you don't do not the 97 percent of stuff you do and i don't mean that to be a negative thing when i say it to them but what i the reason I say it to them is because um, I'm just trying to reiterate the importance of having credibility. And that's something that's something we, we talk about like throughout the business. Like, you know, it's not just my job to have credibility for the business. It's everyone's. They've got to show up in the right way. They've got to talk to people in the right way. They've got to prepare themselves before they talk to people. But then the other side is I, I go the other way and I'm like, actually, look, you know what? Things do go wrong, but actually let's focus. Let's focus on the 97%. You know, Harry Kane doesn't become a bad goal scorer because he didn't score last game. But if he scores a hat-trick this weekend, he's now the best striker in England. Yeah. But if if he doesn't score for the next four consecutive games, it doesn't make him a bad player. No. It just means he hasn't scored. Yeah. You know, so for people quick to judge. Yeah. Um, but that's what we all do. That's human nature. I thought one thing I know about business owners actually, one thing I really like about business owners and working with them is actually they, they tend to be less judgmental. Like I'd... And what I mean by that is when I say business owners, I don't mean the solopreneurs and, and self-employed people. I mean like business owners who've hired staff and uh, like hi hiring staff teaches you a lot of humility because when you've got staff working in business, you, you end up taking responsibility for them and, and what they do. And then I think there's just this sort of unwritten rule between business owners where essentially we we don't we don't come out we, we're really supportive even when things do go wrong because but then the unwritten rule is also we, we move heaven and earth to fix it but it i think having staff teaches you that because in the end of the day you can you, because you're vulnerable when you've got staff you you feel vulnerable at times because your reputation is in someone else's hands and and that is one of the good things about um working with small business owners just that level of humility that you get i think that they just have a lot of curveballs thrown at them haven't they yeah. they've, they've, they've learned how to sort of you know dodge it so yeah. it, it's um yeah it, business owners I, I prefer to work with directly because they do they, they, they're just you know they're just having that commercial awareness I think so Tom it's been absolutely amazing having you on the podcast is there anything um, any final comments you want to make before we sign off just let's say just if you're thinking about doing it yeah. do it um, always seek 
some support if you need it. Don't make your own mistakes. Yeah. Uh, or don't make the mistake that it becomes your problem. Um, you know, just just don't get yourself in that vulnerable position. Um, and yeah, go for it. Yeah. You know, everyone needs to go for it. So thank you so much for that. There's some really good words of wisdom. Um, it's been great having you on the podcast. So um, everyone, you've been listening to the Unrelenting Drive podcast, and I'll see you in the next episode.